hey, before you start this episode, it'll make more sense if you've listened from the beginning of this season. So you might want to do that now if you haven't. Thanks. We're going to take it right up. So now you tell us what you want us on the grass. Oh, you got the professional camera. Excuse me. A group of old friends is leaning in, arms intertwined, posing for a picture. Y'all can move in. Y'all can move in. Move in. Move in. This is an unofficial mini high school reunion, a little backyard cookout. A handful of people are here, former students and teachers from Spingarn High School, a public school in the northeast part of Washington, D.C. It's been closed for a few years now, but it was a tight-knit school when most of the people at this mini-reunion passed through its halls in the late 80s and early 90s. You got us? Life has been good. One more, let me get one more. Life has been good. Most of them were at Spingarn right around the time that a student, a senior, an 18-year-old named Keith Jackson, just didn't show up for class one day. By all accounts, Keith was a quiet guy. People I talked to remember him as a fiddler of pencils, a lover of basketball, usually wearing a sweatsuit. His mom worked two jobs for office cleaning companies. His dad was out of the picture. He lived mostly with his grandparents. He was known to be sweet, unassuming, low-key. And then, one day, on September 26, 1989, Keith Jackson disappeared from school, and he never came back. David Magruder was a junior getting ready for basketball practice when he heard something had happened. I could see um, my teammates huddled around and conversing about something, and I was like, what's up, what's up? They was like, you heard about Keith? Keith Jackson. David was close to Keith's brother. He'd always liked Keith, so his ears perked up. Immediately, I thought the worst, unfortunate. The worst being? His demise. Yeah, 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 so... Somewhat a pessimist. By the late 80s, in the neighborhood where David and Keith both grew up, shootings were common. D.C. had the highest murder rate in the country. So it wasn't crazy for David to worry maybe Keith had been killed. But his teammates were like, no. No, no, he's not. He's not dead. He was caught over Lafayette Park. You know, the president did this drug sale. Yeah, that drug sale. The sale in the park across the street from the White House, where undercover DEA agents bought some crack that President George H.W. Bush would then hold up during his first address to the nation in 1989. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. Keith Jackson, this student at Spingarn High School, had been arrested for being the guy who sold that crack. Mr. Bush's staff wanted to buy some crack near the White House to make a dramatic point on TV, but no dealer could be found. So narcotics agents went to another neighborhood, found Jackson, and asked him to go over near the White House and make a sale. In his speech, the president implied that drugs were easily available, even in Lafayette Park. But in fact, agents had to lure a suspect from the other side of Washington in order to make the buy. Today, the alleged drug dealer, identified as Keith Jackson, was arrested and indicted on five drug-related charges. Also in Washington, the Commerce Department reported today... 
Welcome back to The Uncertain Hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm your host, Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent for Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk. This season, the issue we're tackling is drugs, drug epidemics, and how they ever end. And in this episode, we're going to return to that baggie of crack that President Bush held up in his speech, saying it was seized in front of the White House. And we're going to look at it from a different perspective, through the story of the kid, Keith Jackson, who was arrested for selling that crack. We're going to hear about where he came from, why someone like him would be selling crack in the first place, and what that meant for his life and the lives of those around him. And I want to tell you right now, we are not going to actually hear from Keith Jackson himself. There's a kind of Keith-shaped hole in this story and in his community. In some ways, the hole stands in for a lot of young men of color who disappeared from their communities during the war on crack. But even though we're not going to hear from Keith, we are going to hear from a lot of people who grew up with him or lived through the same time. People whose lives were also changed forever by crack and who were caught up in this epidemic that the war on drugs was theoretically trying to help. Because while politicians in the White House and Capitol Hill were thinking about how to wage and sell the amped-up drug war with speeches and funding and dramatic televised moments involving baggies of crack, people who lived in Keith Jackson's world, they faced a totally different reality that bumped up against those policies and televised moments in sharp and life-altering ways. So that baggie of crack that Bush said had been seized at a park in front of the White House in early September of 1989, the word seized wasn't exactly right. There was no drug bust that day in Lafayette Park. Undercover agents testified later that they bought the crack from Keith and then let him go on with his day. They said they were still building a case against him, hoping he'd lead them to bigger crack suppliers up the chain. But a few weeks later, the headlines were full of the story about how federal agents had lured some kid to the park next to the White House for the president's speech. And speculation was that the DEA was afraid all the publicity would blow their cover, destroy their case. And so, on September 26th, at 6 in the morning, cops came to Keith's house and arrested him. He was getting ready for school, not even dressed yet. The news buzzed all over Spin Garden High School. I think I was in my government class. Everyone was like, Keith got arrested. He sold drugs in front of the White House. Carrie Bridges was in the same grade as Keith at Spingarn. They'd been in school together since junior high. She says when she and her classmates heard the news about Keith... We were like, what? Why would he do that? Not, why would he sell drugs? Carrie says that was actually pretty common at their school, something we'll get deeper into in a minute. But the bigger question for Carrie, and a lot of kids at the time, was... Why would he sell drugs in front of the White House in downtown Washington, D.C.? Fancy and, for the most part, white D.C., miles away from where any of them lived. That was the location, and we were like, you idiot. Like, come on, dude. Like, and why? Because that's not where normal <laughs> transactions would take place. Like, I, and, and, and I wasn't a a drug dealer by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm like, I don't think I knew anyone who would do that in that location. So it was more, it was more of a shock of the where. What was not a shock to Keith's classmates was that he didn't know where the White House was, at least according to news reports. 
If half the kids in Northeast and the majority of the kids in Southeast had never been downtown. That's another SpinGarn grad, Shantae Moy. She was a few years behind Keith. And she says that's how racially divided D.C. was at the time, and in many ways still is. The Northeast and Southeast parts of D.C., where most SpinGarn students lived, most kids from there had never set foot in the fancy government buildings and office high-rises that surrounded the White House. Like, we'd be in a class, like, oh, you know, who wants to ride the bus? Or, depending on where you're coming from, meet us at the museum. And people were like, meet you where? The SpinGarn student body was almost entirely black. Most kids lived in neighborhoods where the poverty rate was double or triple the national average. These were places unlike the blocks around the White House, where crack really did seem to leave no one out of harm's way, in one way or another. And to really understand how Keith Jackson, and lots of kids like him, might have gotten into selling crack, you need to understand a little more about how crack fit into their worlds. Because we were living in a community that was infested. That's Carrie Bridges again, the one who's known Keith Jackson since junior high. She says she and Keith and most of her friends grew up surrounded by crack. Like on all sides of us. Like we were dead smack in the middle of this community and we were surrounded by just the usage, the selling. And then Carrie looks at me like she's sizing me up to see how I'll react to the next thing she says. Uh, My mother at the time was on drugs. Which is why Carrie lived with her grandmother. One of Carrie's uncles struggled with drugs, too. One of my favorite uncles, he had, from what I was told, smoked so much crack, he passed away behind the wheel of the car. And my 13-year-old cousin had to jump from the back of the car and steer the wheel to the um, shoulder. At first, Carrie kept what drugs had done to her mom and her uncle a secret. It was something we didn't talk about. We knew about it, but we didn't talk about it. For a long time, I was embarrassed. But one day in high school, she was in this classroom where the teacher was talking about drugs. He told them, look around you. Someone next to you, a parent is probably also using drugs. And I said, my mom is on drugs. And they were like, oh, that's no big deal because my my father's on drugs or my brother's on drugs, my sister's on drugs. It was like... I think I was expecting more comfort because I was like, okay, I'm going to tell them my story. And they were like, oh, okay. My dad's on drugs, so, I mean, you're no different. Like, we're not going to, like, what I call a woo-woo. Like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? What do you need? It was more like, oh, we'll join the club. And for kids living in that club or around it, this place where so many moms and dads and sisters and uncles were using crack, the effects of the drug were hard to ignore day to day walking down the street, waiting for the bus on the way to school. You saw it uh, pretty consistently. Here's David Magruder again, Keith's friend who played on the Spingarn basketball team. You would see someone wanting to do crazy, intense labor for minuscule payment, and you knew what it was. They just want to hit, you know, and some very salacious things would take place that were uh, mind-boggling to us as kids. That, like, you would walk past and see? Yeah, very, very uh, (laughs) R-rated, hardcore R-rated stuff. But, I mean, you you saw sexual things. You, You heard of sexual propositions. You saw a lot of compromises being made that you know 
adults and um, well-minded people just shouldn't make. You saw theft, lack of hygiene, physical deterioration. We're going to get back to the neighborhoods where Carrie Bridges and David Magruder and Keith Jackson grew up. And I'm going to tell you what happened to Keith. But I wanted to step back and ask, why were their neighborhoods full of crack? Theirs and other poor urban communities. Because the way you answer that question leads you to attack the problem in different ways. And in the 80s and 90s, the way many people in power answered the question, why is this neighborhood full of drugs, was that people with bad morals were making bad choices. In 1982, when Ronald Reagan relaunched the war on drugs, he crystallized this line of thinking in a speech where he attacked, quote, utopian presumptions about human nature that see man as primarily a creature of his material environment. By changing this environment through expensive social programs, this philosophy holds that government can permanently change man and usher in an era of prosperity and virtue. In much the same way, individual wrongdoing is seen as the result of poor socioeconomic conditions or an underprivileged background. This utopian philosophy, Reagan argued, held that society, not the individual, was to blame for crime and drugs. But he said in the last few years, a new political consensus utterly rejected that point of view. The American people are reasserting certain enduring truths, the belief that right and wrong do matter, that individuals are responsible for their actions, that evil is frequently a conscious choice, and that retribution must be swift and sure for those who decide to make a career of preying on the innocent. So, according to Reagan, people who used drugs, and especially people who sold drugs, were making bad choices. And the way to make them stop making those bad choices was to punish them. By the end of the decade, in September 1989, when President George H.W. Bush was laying out his anti-drug strategy, his administration took the logic of moral responsibility a step further. People who used drugs weren't just making bad choices that harmed their own lives. Drug users and dealers were the cause of the tough conditions in urban neighborhoods. You can see this argument in the National Drug Control Strategy. This was a book-length policy brief that Bush's administration released the same day that he gave his baggie of crack speech. It says, quote, Crack is responsible for the fact that vast patches of the American urban landscape are rapidly deteriorating. But blaming deteriorating neighborhoods on crack in the 80s doesn't make sense to a historian like Donna Murch. She's a professor at Rutgers who's writing a book about the history of crack. Things that were attributed to drug use were deeply economic. And sometimes there was a kind of complicated relationship between the two. You've got to remember, Donna says, what was going on in the 80s in a lot of urban neighborhoods. The 1980s is a period when you have serious recessions that are suffered in the cities. Uh, Social welfare programs were being cut, and you simultaneously had the loss of manufacturing jobs. It was just a really, really devastating time. It was in that setting that crack came on the scene in neighborhoods like Keith Jackson's. Essentially a cocaine marketing innovation prepackaged in a cheap, easy-to-use form with a quicker, more powerful high. It's in a smokable form, you know, versus snorting of powder cocaine. Smoking was something that was familiar to people. So it becomes an easier drug to consume. Initially, these rocks were $25, and then they dropped 
to 15, then 10, and even 5. So it was a way to market a product to a lower-income population. And lower-income people have a much higher risk of drug abuse and addiction than wealthier people. Research shows that recreational drug use cuts across all classes. But if you look at frequent, hardcore drug use, it's more likely among people who live in places with high unemployment rates, lower wages, more deindustrialization, more income inequality. That's true now with the opioid epidemic. And it was true back in the 1980s with crack. So people are suffering real economic displacement and divestment, and that that in turn creates the conditions for drug use. Not that wealthier people didn't try crack. They did. That idea that you get addicted the first time you smoke crack, that's a myth. But if you're in a bad way already, for whatever reason, crack is more likely to sink its teeth into you. It kicks you when you're down. I don't talk about this much, but what I can tell you is that there's like this moment of silence where everything is quiet and everything stops and everything disappears. Uh, for the period that I was actually using, that's what happened for me. Susan Burton grappled with crack addiction for almost 20 years, starting in the mid-80s. She fell into crack after her five-year-old son was killed in a freak accident playing in front of their home in a poor part of Los Angeles. He was hit by a police car that happened to be driving by. In her grief, Susan says the intensity of crack, a thing that scares most people off, that's what was appealing to her at the time. I wanted everything to stop, and I wanted everything to disappear. And I wanted to not think what my thoughts and feel my feelings. And that allowed me not to. So I fell into that, and I just disappeared into it. Uh, Susan, as I knew her, uh, was gone. Susan spent 20 years in and out of prison on drug-related charges, mostly possession. Drug treatment in the neighborhood she lived in, it wasn't even something she'd ever really heard of. I guess I would sort of capture it by saying that if you stumble and fall and there's nothing to pull yourself up with, then you stay on the ground. The people who had something to pull themselves up with, they lived in other, wealthier parts of town. And Susan finally found her way there, to a treatment center. Not actually that far from where she lived, but worlds away. A place with access to counseling, a 12-step program. In an upscale community in Santa Monica, a couple of blocks from the beach, where people were not put in prison for drug possession, where resources was plentiful, like like resources flowed, like, I guess, in the land of milk and honey, uh, what my mother and father came looking for in the, from the South. Susan's been in recovery ever since she went to that treatment center. She now runs group homes for formerly incarcerated women, many who were in on drug charges like her. But she says when she did finally get access to treatment, it made her realize something. If you're in an environment and there's as much as a flimsy reed, you can pull yourself up. You know, you have something to hold on to. You'll be able to get back up and walk and stand again. So that's how I see that. And when you're in communities that are barren for resources, that there's um, a lot of lack, then, you know, there's nothing to pull yourself up with. 
As much debate as there was and is about why the ravages of crack hit poor communities of color harder than other places in the 1980s, what's undeniable is that race played a huge role in the way people talked about crack back then. Sometimes race was in the foreground, sometimes in the background, sometimes it worked in contradictory ways. In the last episode, I talked about how in Bush's baggie of crack speech, he used the story about it being bought in front of the White House to play up the idea that the crack epidemic was a threat to people everywhere, from all backgrounds. But at the same time, crack was also painted as very much a black threat. More about that after a break. In the 80s, the media and politicians often painted crack as a drug that was threatening all corners of the nation. But at the same time... The national focus and representation was crack as a black drug. That's Donna Merchigan, the historian. And she says the history of drugs is full of this same racial scapegoating, where panic around a particular drug is linked. To domestic populations of color. So drugs have multiple lives. One is a real material life and another is an imaginary life. And that imaginary life is often racial fantasy. The way that the narrative of drugs is mobilized is often to racial ends in the United States. One of the earliest examples of this, Donna says, involved opium. Back in the late 1800s, opium was legal in America. Smoking it, injecting it, ingesting it. You could walk into any pharmacy and buy an over-the-counter painkiller with opium as a main ingredient. There were actually no legal restrictions on using opium at all until 1875, when the first drug law was passed in the U.S., a local one in San Francisco. And strangely, it only outlawed one form of opium, smoking it. It was still okay to shoot it up or swallow it. Historians like Donna say it's not a coincidence that opium smoking was the method preferred by Chinese immigrants who faced decades of discrimination in the U.S. and were seen as an economic threat by many whites. Opium dens became a racialized symbol, portrayed in pop culture like this old silent film Broken Blossoms about a Chinese opium addict, an actor in yellowface, who lusts after a white woman. And laws against opium smoking, Donna Murch argues, became a tool for discriminating against Chinese immigrants and whipping up racialized fears. And the threat of Chinese men to white women and the white slave trade, you know, bound up in this fear of some kind of transgressive, illicit activity. Drug policy mixed with racialized fears again in the early 1900s with cocaine in the South. Cocaine was legal and widely available in things like, you know, Coca-Cola. It wasn't outlawed until 1914, when it started getting associated with Black Americans, men in particular. You have these wild circulations of rumors about African-American cocaine consumption, that it made Black men more violent. Implied in that was the threat of miscegenation uh, and essentially of, you know, Black sexual violence against white women. There were actual news articles about this. One ran in the New York Times in 1914, Headline, Negro cocaine fiends are the new Southern menace. It goes on to detail how black men on cocaine are impervious to bullets and that some Southern police departments have upgraded their guns in response. 
Donna Murch, the historian, says these rumors were spreading just as white economic fears were coming to a head in the wake of emancipation, just as whites were facing a reality where they had to compete for jobs with a new generation of free black men. Cocaine got prohibited, Donna says. At a moment when racial segregation in the South was being codified. In some ways, the new cocaine laws became another tool of Jim Crow, she argues, something that could be used to threaten and control Black Americans. And there's a parallel plot with marijuana, which was legal until it started getting associated with violent Mexican immigrants by some politicians and in media accounts. Take this 1925 New York Times headline, Mexican crazed by marijuana runs amok with butcher knife. And then there were the anti-drug propaganda films of the time. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Like the 1936 movie Reefer Madness. It all added up to cement the dangers of marijuana in the popular imagination. And marijuana was outlawed right during the Great Depression when Mexican labor just so happened to be threatening white workers. And there are echoes of this same pattern, Donna says, when it comes to crack. She points to freebasing, which is another way of smoking cocaine with a similar effect to crack. When freebasing was popular in the 1970s among whites, it did not inspire the same sort of criminal crackdown that crack would when it showed up in such concentrations in communities of color a few years later. It was only then that America's leaders announced that we needed to get tough. Tough on drug criminals. Much tougher than we are now. Tougher federal laws. Tougher penalties. Beef up law enforcement. Toughen sentences. Build new prison space for 20 The tough approach to crack would, as we know now, have a disproportionate impact on communities of color. And in that way, Donna Merch argues, it's just another example in a long line of drug scares being mobilized to racial ends. Still, crack was a real threat to the communities of color it hit the hardest. When you talk to former students at Keith Jackson's high school, Spingarn, students who went there around the time he did in the late 80s, the shadow of crack is never far away in their stories. Not just the using, but the selling. At the mini high school reunion I went to, everyone I talked to who grew up alongside Keith Jackson told me about people they knew who sold crack. Don Schatz went to Spingarn in the late 80s at the same time as Keith. He explained that the demand for crack was high in their neighborhoods. Economic opportunities were scarce. And so the appeal of selling was hard to resist. I grew up around drugs, you know, and sold drugs myself. You know, it was something, to, you know, a fad, something to do. Don was in the night school at Spingarn, so he didn't know Keith personally. But he definitely knew about the speech the president gave where he held up the baggie of crack. In fact, Don is the guy we heard from last episode who thought it sounded pretty fishy when Bush claimed it had been seized in a park in front of the White House. But when he heard a classmate of his might be involved, that didn't surprise him. He understood why someone like Keith might sell drugs. Making money, fast money, buying clothes and cars. It wasn't nothing to get involved with drugs when it's around you all day, every day. I talked to another guy who sold crack in the 80s as a kid, Reginald Murray. He's from the other side of the country in Los Angeles. And Reginald said pretty much the same thing. In a neighborhood like his, selling crack was kind of a no-brainer of a job to take. I grew up in a family where it was, you know, myself, two sisters, and another little brother. And my mother, you know, was on welfare, so we had a very, very small income. My mom was probably getting 
maybe $700 a month for all of us. When Reginald was a teenager, an older guy from the neighborhood said he'd pay him up to $500 a week to stand on a corner and sell crack to customers. Reginald did the math, and it was exhilarating. His mom was getting $700 a month to raise a family of four. And now I have $500 a week just for me. I mean, I can pay rent. I can pay. We can get our cable back on, clean up my wardrobe. So it just seemed like a blessing. But Reginald says from there, the calculations would get blurry. You know what you're doing is bad and it kind of bothers you. But then you look at, you know, what's being generated from it. And it's kind of like, you know, I'm paying my mother's light bills with groceries in the abundance of groceries now you know it's not when it gets close to the end of the month the refrigerator is like on bare status so it's, all these things are changing and you know there's so much wrong with it but the what you're looking at is so you know right and you know crack cocaine made that possible which is maybe why even people like carrie bridges keith jackson's classmate whose own family fell victim to the harms of crack cocaine when I asked her how she felt about the people she knew who sold it, who fed her family's addictions, here's what she said. So I had an interesting position on that. I never fault the people that were selling. I never faulted them for wanting to supply a demand and get money for it. Help their mom with the rent or be able to buy clothes that they probably wouldn't have been able to buy. Not necessarily all expensive clothes, but maybe they only have one pair of shoes for the school year. Maybe they can now have two or three pairs of shoes for the school year. And was there any part of you that, like, did you have to come to that decision intellectually? Did you have a feeling of like, but still, how could you do that? Like, you could have sold to my mom. Or did you, was it just, was it just immediate and clear? It was just clear. For Carrie, it was the demand for drugs, not the supply of drugs, that seemed like it should be the focus of concern. Because if there's no demand, there's no need to supply. If the people didn't use, there would be no product to sell. So it was always more, we need to do whatever we need to do to get people off of drugs. That was not, however, the thrust of the attitude in the national drug control strategy that President Bush unveiled in his Baggie of Crack speech on September 5th, 1989. Treatment and prevention weren't completely ignored in the speech, but they certainly weren't given the kind of attention or funding that being tough on crack dealers was. And when it came to the particular crack dealer who sold the stuff that Bush held up in his speech, Keith Jackson, at his trial... The criminal justice system did not give him the kind of nuanced understanding that his classmate did. He was crying and hysterical on the floor of the cell, and they were worried he was going to hurt himself, and they eventually had to come in and put him in a straitjacket. That's coming up on the next Uncertain Hour. That's it for this episode of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next time with more stories about the things we fight a lot about, but usually know just a little about. We'll be back Thursday, March 28th, and every Thursday for the next month with a brand new episode. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was reported by me, Chrissy Clark. The Uncertain Hour is produced by me and Caitlin Esch, along with associate producer Peter Balanon-Rosen, production assistant Annie Reese, and digital producer Tony Wagner. Mixing and sound design by Jake Gorski. Additional production help from Lyra Smith. 
Our podcast is edited by the incredible Catherine Winter. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Special thanks to Nancy Fargali, who helped bring this podcast into the world. Thanks to the Vanderbilt Television News Archive for providing some of the archival footage you heard in this episode. To tell us what you think of this or any other episode, email us, uncertainhour at marketplace.org. We read everything. And if you like what you've heard, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. 